Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Sienna, and this is Nobel Prize Losers, the people that science forgot. Okay, I'm <laughs> really excited to tell you about this person that I have. I want to say that I knew who she was, and I knew she would be a perfect first episode, but I did not. I just thought her science sounded cool, and the more I Googled her, the more perfect I realized she was for the idea. So I'm going to tell you about Esther Letterberg. Okay. Jewish fellow? Yes. <laughs> okay. So she was born in 1922 um, as Esther Miriam Zimmer. Okay. Uh, she was born to a poor family in the Bronx. Her father was a print shop worker, and her siblings were garment workers. A story I found in my research uh, which I, everything else I found was sort of throughout multiple articles. This one wasn't, so take it with a grain. Apparently, when she was young, her grandfather tried to teach all the boys in her family Hebrew, but they wouldn't learn it. So Esther convinced him to teach her, and then she would read all of the Hebrew at Yom Kippur. She, uh, she didn't want to be like her family and just sort of work a small job. So she went to Hunter College on a scholarship. And all of her advisors expected her to study French or literature because that's pretty much that's what women do. Yeah, that's what women do. But she decided she was going to study biochemistry. And that's they, what women do. They told her not to because the subject was too difficult for women. So she said, uh, fuck you, and graduated from Hunter in 1942. From there, she would go on to get a master's in genetics at Stanford in 1946. And apparently, while she was working at Stanford uh, and studying, to make ends meet, she would sometimes have to live off of eating frog's legs after dissection. Oh, after dissection. I was going to be like, that sounds bougie as hell. <laughs> she would eat the frogs that she had just dissected. Wouldn't they be all, like, covered in formaldehyde? Look, I did high school biology. Mm -hmm. In my experience, the things you dissect are usually in formaldehyde, so that is mildly concerning. But it was also the forties, so maybe. So they were just dissecting fresh frogs. Yeah, maybe practice was different. Okay. Um, and shortly before she graduated Stanford, she met and married Joshua Letterberg. She was twenty-three, and he was twenty-one at the time that they were married. Oh, cradle robber. <laughs> um, Joshua was described Ow. as a brilliant thinker who would become famous for his big ideas. But it was said that he would have the big ideas and Esther would be the one who knew how to execute them, how to actually do the research and the lab work. She would spend a summer studying microbiology at Hopkins Marine Station, which is the marine lab at Stanford. Nothing to do with Johns Hopkins. <laughs> I had to Google that. <laughs> um, until Joshua got a professor professorship at the University of Wisconsin, and Esther would follow him there. Oh, uh, Madison. Okay, because that's like known on its own. Okay, uh, University of Wisconsin Madison, where she would receive a U.S. Public Health Fellowship for her research, and she would earn a Ph.D. in bacterial genetics in 1950. They had that in 1950? Bacterial genetics? Yeah. A 
Apparently. Look, part of the reason we're doing this is because I have such a tenuous grip on the timeline of, like, all science. Fair, fair. So Joshua and Esther were in the same field, and they did a lot of groundbreaking work together in their time at University of Wisconsin. In 1952, they invented the technique of replica plating, which was a way to use sterile velvet as sort of like a stamp. You look really confused. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking that velvet doesn't immediately strike me as an easy thing to sterilize because it's got all kinds of like um, gappy stuff, doesn't it? Yes, but that is part of what makes it good. It, it's working like a stamp, like I said. So it's pressing, you press it into the plate, and it picks up all of the bacteria colonies. And then you take your bit of velvet, you move it over, and you stick it down on your next plate. And now you have the exact same geometry of colonies, and it was in one move. And you could do that over and over. So you could keep track of, of the same, you knew they were from the same source colony, but now they were growing on separate plates. You know they were from the same source by looking at, like, what the pattern was on the plate? Yes. Okay. You could say this in this spot on this plate is the same as this one, but this is a new mutation. And sterilizing the velvet is not a problem. That's my where I'm confused. Sterilizing the velvet is not a problem. Okay. I don't know exactly how <laughs> they sterilized the velvet, but they did. Mm. And basically, through this, they were able to prove that mutations were random, okay. which up, up until that point, it was believed that mutations occurred because they had to and that they were um, a necessary path of evolution. Okay. The letterbergs showed by having all of these same colonies that the mutations happened randomly and they could be good, but they didn't have to be. Wait, so hang on. Are they like a science power couple? Yes. And he's the ideas man and she's the science man? Or yeah, is that they a reduction? Both, yes. Um, a quote that I found was, by all accounts, Joshua was a brilliant thinker and he would become famous for his big ideas. And then Millard Suzman, a professor at University of Wisconsin, said, I'm sure that Esther benefited by being in Josh's presence, but obviously Josh benefited by being in Esther's presence too. So it was a symbiotic relationship. He, <laughs> yeah, um, this is a science podcast. Um, he this was is the a history <laughs> So So yeah, he was kind of the ideas man, and then she was more hands-on. Okay. Rebecca Farrell, a biologist who is studied Letterberg's life, said that this um, act of replica plating was basically, it's the difference between handwritten manuscripts and a printing press. And then went on to say that it has Esther all over it. She was a <laughs> practical scientist who came from a family of textile workers. Oh, yeah, it would make sense that she would have the both the idea of velvet and the idea mm -hmm. of stamps. Yeah. That did not even occur to me. Before they had invented yeah. this method, to move colonies to new plates, scientists would basically use a toothpick and just pick each individual colony and move it over. Okay. So this is, again, where you doing biology and me doing super not biology. Mm -hmm. Um 
See, it seems to me there are two things that would do. Either stab the bacteria or be nothing. Like, if you poke it with the bacteria, with the toothpick, do they just, just kind of, like, glom onto it? Or do they, like, not? So, okay. Um, so, having worked in a lab, like, when I would streak plates with E. coli, I would take a pipette tip and just tap it to the E. coli colony. And that would pick up. You don't need to pick up all of the bacteria. You just need to pick up enough to transfer some. Okay, so the colony it, is a little sticky, but not all the way sticky. Not all the way. And I don't think a toothpick is sharp enough to stab something that's microscopic. That's valid. <laughs> <laughs> I I know more about the history of toothpicks than I do about lab work. Um, but I know a lot about the history of toothpicks. Do not get me started. Um, I don't. So, I don't want to ask how you know that. So I'm just going to move <laughs> on. So if their method mm-hmm. is better, is it just that you're doing different stuff that you don't use it? The velvet method as opposed to poking it with a pipette. Oh, yeah. I am i don't have to – the lab I worked at, I don't have to have, like, multiple sort of stamp images of the same colonies. Okay. I would typically, what I would be doing with the pipette method is I'd be streaking it onto a new plate, and then I'd be placing that pipette tip into a solution to run on PCR. Okay. I don't feel like we need to visit what We don't need to visit what PCR is We don't need to learn about what your job was. (laughs) Okay, so that's one of the things they discovered together. They also uh, proved that bacteria can mix genetic material and don't solely... Uh, reproduce asexually, creating identical offspring. They did that? They did that. Basically, basically, they proved bacteria sex. I knew bacteria sex. I didn't know. Um, I definitely assumed that was more recent. Cause, like, it I was learned in the that, 50s. Like, they, I learned like in biology class that bacteria mm-hmm. reproduce asexually. And then I learned from a biology student that that was a lie. And so, so that was Joshua, Esther, and a couple, there were, it was a four member team. Esther within that identified that there's a fertility factor that needs to exist in the bacteria to allow them to do this, which she named fertility factor S. And that was just Esther? That was, that was just Esther. Okay. Discovered that. Wait, so she's a geneticist. Her husband is also a geneticist or? Yes. He's okay. also a geneticist. Um, he studied at Yale, and he they met oh, because, cool. <laughs> because he reached out to her about something she was doing at Stanford. So that so is all, even even then he was like respectful of her as a scientist. It wasn't just like being a husband and wife team. Yes, their relationship was always very much based in science together. In they the, did a, like, I power love your brain kind of thing. They did a lot of their work together. And if you look up either of their articles, most of them will have each other as uh, co-authors. Yeah. Okay. So that's the work that they did as a husband-wife team. What Esther discovered on her own that she's most well-known for by anyone who does remember her is the discovery of something called the lambda phase. 
I'm sorry, the lambda, like the Greek letter lambda. Yes. Lambda phage, phage. like autophage? Yes. As in like the pH age? Yes, pH age. Talk phage. to me like I'm dumb and I study language, okay? Phage is um, a type of virus, uh, viruses that uh, infect bacteria. Oh, okay. So the lambda phage was a form of virus that uh, infected E. coli. Okay. This all E. coli point, or like just some strains? All E. coli. I say like it matters to me in some kind of science way. <laughs> From my understanding, all E. coli. Okay. So up until this point in history, scientists believed that viruses only existed as lytic. And basically what a lytic virus does is it gets into the cell, it makes more copies of itself, using the cell's resources, and then it bursts out lysing lytic, lysing the cell, and causing cell death. Is that not what viruses do? That is what some viruses do. Okay, because that's definitely what I learned viruses do. What Esther noticed about the lambda phage is it would insert its DNA into the E. coli, but instead of just immediately making more copies and breaking out, that DNA would just exist in the cytoplasm in a way that would be incorporated into the bacterial genome and be passed on as it reproduced. I don't know if you know the answer to this off the top of your head, mm -hmm. but this came up in a conversation I was having with a friend recently. Is that what HIV does? Because I know HIV does something like really insidi insidious. Um, um, I, yeah, I don't know off the top of my head, but a lot of a lot of viruses that can go dormant and reemerge. This is what they do because okay. it exists in your cells. Most lysogenic, that's what this kind of virus is called, can become lytic, and so then they make more and then they burst out but they can sort of exist in the cell they've infected until they're ready for that to happen. They're, please excuse the pun, like microscopic sleeper cells. Yes. <laughs> so, but up until this point, we mm -hmm. didn't know viruses could do that. Sleeper cells are very secretive. And more than that, the incredible thing is realizing this, we saw that that viral DNA was being incorporated into the bacterial genome, which is how we do genetic engineering. Okay. Um, e. coli, there are strains of it that are not super infective to people and are really easy to culture. So it's a bacteria that has been used in labs for a really long time. And then having this virus that is also easy to culture and specifically puts its genome into E. coli, something we already knew how to work with, is what paved the way for the field of genetic engineering. Wait, hang on. I don't know if you breezed over this or I missed it. Which virus? The lambda phage. Oh, I thought that was the name of a type of virus. No, it is the specific kind of virus that she identified. Oh, okay. I got it. I thought you were saying this virus and then you were going to be like, you know, none of the diseases I can think of are viral diseases, so just ignore me. But, like, insert disease here. Like, I bet you're going to be like, it's cholera, which I know is not a virus, but you see my point. Rabies is a virus, if you ever need one to go to. <laughs> Your favorite. 
yeah. virus. My favorite virus. The measles so virus, basic, right? I think so, yeah. Most things right. we vaccinate against are viruses. Yes. So basically, without Dr. Esther Letterberg, we would not have genetic... She earned that doctor. She did. Thank you. Um, this is what she got her doctorate for, is this discovery of the Lambda phage. Hang on. She, she was still a still grad student, student when everything, she did this? Everything I told you about, she did before she was 35 years old. Well, I feel remarkably inept. Before 35. This entire podcast is going to make me feel inept, isn't it? Probably. Okay. She's done all this incredible work. And in 1958, her husband, her mentor, and one of her other research partners were all awarded the Nobel Prize for the study on bacterial genetic sharing that she participated in. But she did not get it. I don't know if you thought ahead because knowing me, you might have known I was going to ask this question. Had any woman won it by then? Marie Curie. Okay, but I don't know when Marie Curie. She was late 1800s, early 1900s. So a woman had won. A woman had won a Nobel Prize before. I'm just saying, like, not that it makes it better. I'm just saying that it wasn't that they didn't believe that women were capable of winning the prize. Yes. Hang on, though. Curie's a different... um, She won physics. Did she? I thought it was chemistry. She won two. I think she won one in physics and chemistry. Damn. Yeah. The ineptness is sinking in. (laughs) Yeah, but, I mean, she got radiation poisoning from it, so... Not, well... (laughs) So good. (laughs) So, do you really want to be Marie Curie? Yes. were also a science power couple. Yes. So that work that I mentioned on bacteria sex that Esther was a core part of, the other three members of the research team were awarded a Nobel Prize for it, and she was not. And when you say the other three members of the team, do you mean the only other three members of the team? As in she was the only member of the team to not get the prize. I believe that is the case from what I read, but I'm not positive, so I don't want to definitively go after Mm -hmm. anybody. What I do have is a quote from Rebecca Farrell, the same biologist I quoted earlier, who said, it's this group of four people who worked on things. The three guys get the prize, and she gets to put on gloves and a long gown and watch. Brutal. So her husband technically acknowledged her in his Nobel acceptance. Define um, technically. I'm gonna I'm gonna read you the quote. As in I love my wife. Um, he said he said he enjoyed the companionship of many colleagues above all my wife. Oh his so he referred I mean, to her as a colleague. Yeah, that's better than I was expecting. I thought it was gonna be like an Oscar acceptance speech where they're like Mine to my family, who I love more than anything. But at least he acknowledged that she was also a science person. Yeah. The year after he was awarded the Nobel Prize and she wasn't, they uh, returned to Stanford, where Joshua would go on to found the Department of Genetics as his first thing ever being done at Stanford. And Esther, who had done all the same research with him, Hang on, hang on, hang on. But didn't she study genetics at Stanford? But it wasn't its own department. Okay. But yes. (laughs) You know, I hadn't thought about that. She did study genetics at Stanford. He did found the Stanford genetics department. (laughs) I think it was just 
under it was like under biology under biology so now now it had its own department okay so he he was not a stanford graduate but that's not what i was saying i was no, just no. saying i know didn't stanford already <laughs> teach genetics so he became the head of the department all of this sort of very high level stuff while esther who had all of the same qualifications as him had to lobby just to convince the dean to hire a woman, and he only accepted when she agreed to take an untenured position, which she was far overqualified for. Ugh. I mean, also, exactly what the academic drug market is like now, but not important. <laughs> not, I don't think the academic job market was super oversaturated in 1959, but I don't know. The market for women in academia was definitely not. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was one of the first 10 women law professors in the country. Um, and that was in the 60s, I think. I would have to, don't quote me on that. Okay. <laughs> A Brandeis University historian would go on to say she never had a position commensurate with her position in science. Which is to say... Basically, she worked at Stanford um, for the rest of her working career, but, but she her position never reflected how the good experience and knowledge and talent that she had. Okay, I get that. Because the quote seemed to me like she had a pull in the community, which it seems like you were saying she didn't get, even though she absolutely deserved it. No, she did not have a pull in the community because... The return to Stanford was described as the end of the era of the husband and wife science team that was Joshua and Esther Lederberg. She and Joshua would eventually get divorced in 1966. When they were divorced... <laughs> Please tell me she took the Nobel Prize and the divorce. <laughs> oh, she deserved it. When they were divorced, she nearly uh, lost her job because of it. And she had to convince them that she was worth keeping separate from Joshua. That she wasn't just like a piggyback spouse. Yeah. And she would work contract to contract until her retirement in 1985. While she was at Stanford, she directed the Plasma Research Center from 1976 to 1986. Which you will notice is after she retired. She mm. Yes. Plasma the... Plasmid. Okay. So not the state of matter and not the TV. No. Plasmid the, is um, a oh, ring so. of DNA that's found in bacteria. <laughs> to anybody listening who thinks I'm performatively a moron. <laughs> it's not a bit. She's that dumb. It's true. <laughs> I have a lot of knowledge about a very specific subset of things, mm -hmm. like the history of toothpicks. Yes. She continued to work at the research center she set up for Stanford after she had retired. So was she not getting paid for that then, I assume? No, then it became volunteer work. Okay. She wasn't only a scientist, though. She had a passion for early music, which is to say Baroque and Renaissance music. Okay, so what a layperson would classify as classical music. Because Baroque is like a box, is Baroque. Okay. And Renaissance. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Music. Renaissance and like, music, I don't know what would classify as Renaissance music. I, I would probably call that 
classical music even from like a music theory perspective. Yes. Don't ask. Well, <laughs> everything I saw described it as early music. Um, mm-hmm. She yeah. founded the Mid Peninsula Recorder Orchestra in 1962. I'm sorry. The as in like the children recorder. Instruments. No offense to anybody who plays the recorder, but that yeah. sounds like the worst use of time. She said that she wanted to play the flute, but picked up the recorder on a whim and fell in love. And she was quoted saying, you can begin any time, even though it takes a lifetime to be good. Okay, it does, because it's a bad instrument. <laughs> Sorry. The Mid-Peninsula Recorder I had a bad childhood experience. <laughs> still exists today where amateurs oh, sorry <laughs> amateurs can go and play music from the 13th century on okay it was through her love of early music that she met her second husband Matthew Simon in 1989 they got married when she was 70 years old in 1993 Aww, hang on you didn't tell me there was elderly love Oh, honey, it's going to get cuter. You didn't warn me. Oh, no. Okay. For anybody who's curious, I have a deep, deep love for cute stories about elderly people. Matthew Simon was everything Joshua Letterberg was not for Esther, in that he would be damned if the world wasn't going to know her. Elaborate. He was quoted as saying, her attitude was, forget it, I'll be forgotten anyway. But I was angry. So they would remain married until her death in 2006. And after Esther died, Simon dedicated himself to creating the Esther M. Zimmer Letterberg Memorial website. Okay, which I assume is still active. It is still active. He codes it himself. And it is a catalog of all of her photographs, her papers, her discoveries, and even her hobbies. I went to the website. Oh, and I need to go to the website immediately after this is over. And when you're on it, it plays early music. Oh. Like what brought them together. Okay, now, because I can't visit this and mm-hmm. do this at the same time, does it look like a website that an elderly man coded? Or is it like um a, a little bit like good. it's not it's not the the Does most it look like a website that a website. good coder coded in two thousand six, or does it look well, like a website that thing. an elderly man coded? As of twenty nineteen, he said that he was still spending sixteen to seventeen hours on the website on a good day. I'm sorry, that's all of them. That's all of the hours. He dedicated himself to telling her story. Okay, but that's like, that's not enough to eat and sleep. He said that's on a good day. So I don't think that's he every spent, day. Yeah, that's not every day. But Still. He, he is cataloging everything she has ever done, every scrap of something he has about her life. That's um, incredible. The uh, the Time article that I was reading on it says one gets the sense that he doesn't really care. That's in reference to how many views the website gets. Mm-hmm. That what matters to him is making sure that this version of history in which Esther Letterberg is the protagonist 
has been made available. I figure I'm going to die, and someone may want to look at this a hundred years from now, he says. Who knows? I love how you absolutely found the perfect person um, to do this about. I mean, that's, I thought, I, I definitely expected to feel academically inept, but now I also feel romantically inept. <laughs> but she that's met so him, beautiful. She met him when she was in her late 60s. They got married when she was 70 years old. Okay, well, that's a long way off for me, so I don't want to got to wait that long to have somebody who would make it their life's work to make a website about my life's work. He said that he imagines when he, he sits working on it in the house that they share, and he says he imagines Esther on the couch reacting to his work, saying, you've been doing this thing for 12 years? Are you crazy? Oh, my God, I love that. I feel so filled with joy. So she didn't get the recognition she deserved during life. But at least Esther Letterberg has someone who is doing his damnedest to make sure she gets the recognition she deserves in death. Well, um, I hope (laughs) maybe we can help a little bit more. Maybe. (laughs) I just want to share one more quote that was from a friend and colleague, Dr. Jonathan Hardy, about just who Esther was as a person. Okay. Esther was cheery and had an excellent sense of humor, but I believe she would want to be remembered mostly as a scientist, which she was through and through until her very last days. So was she working at, to that point, was she working at the plasmid lab until she died or did she stop at some point? I only know that she directed the Plasmid Research Center till 86. She died in 2006. But so that's 20 years where she was not. That's 20 years where she was not the director of it. However, what I did read said that she stayed on to volunteer well after she retired. So she seemed to still be involved in science. And once she picked up the, the mantle of early music, she did a lot of research into that, even though it wasn't her field. And it wasn't necessarily hard science, but she she brought her scientific mind. She caught the bug, you know. She brought her scientific mind to everything she did. Yeah. You had briefly at the beginning, I was so hopeful because you had said that their relationship was built upon him respecting her science. They were a powerhouse of scientific research. No. I asked, so it was like an I'm in love with your brain thing, and you said yes. From what I understand, the inception of their relationship was him reaching out to her Mm -hmm. because of something she was studying or working on. So it was, I I believe what I said was that their marriage was based in their science and in their love of science together. Okay. But it just grew apart from that. It grew up, yes. It's not even like the the Nobel Prize was awarded to him in 1958, and they didn't get divorced till 1966. So it wasn't. Yeah, so it wasn't about the Nobel Prize. It wasn't about the Nobel Prize. It wasn't about his position at Stanford over hers, which was 59. No, it could be about totally personal stuff that we don't. 
the Time article that I mentioned before said, for reasons only the two of them could say, their relationship faltered. Yeah. No, that makes sense. But so it it wasn't necessarily about his treatment or respect of her, but no, he he didn't he did not fight for her to be recognized. Mhm. Yeah. Which is not cool. And but I like that she got in the end the total opposite of that. That's wonderful. Someone who to this who, day continues. Yeah, who gives everything to fighting for that. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. And that's Esther Letterberg. And if she didn't do the work... <laughs> Can I be her when I grow up? If she didn't do the work she did, the the field that I'm studying, the job that I'm working in right now, wouldn't exist. Which is crazy. Yep. What brought you to her? I was just sort of looking up snubbed scientists, basically. <laughs> and I found a National Geographic article about six women in science who had been, who had sort of actively been passed over for Nobel Prizes. It just had brief descriptions of all of their research, and hers was something that you I, understood. Knew the, I knew the most about, so I wouldn't have, it, it didn't require me doing research into, like, physics and stuff. It was just a good, <laughs> physics. I'm, so, I'm sorry to any physicists. I'm not. Um, <laughs> so I am sorry to anybody who plays the recorder, though. You can quote me on that. Um, not for anything I said. Just. <laughs> so it was sort of just like I thought it would be good to start with someone who did something I could understand a little bit better. Okay. And then just the more I researched her, the more I fell in love with her. And she. Yeah, because she seems baller. And she exemplifies the personality that I love that is part of why I wanted to do this podcast of mm-hmm. she did the science because the science mattered. Yeah, absolutely. It didn't matter to her that she didn't get the Nobel Prize. It didn't matter to her that she was not the center of attention. She said, forget it, I'll be forgotten anyway. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, at a time when nobody did, she ignored all of the people who tell women that they can't do it. Exactly. She was literally told in her undergraduate, you can't do biochemistry. It's too hard for women. And then she went, And she revolutionized the field. Yeah, she went on to get a doctorate and change our basic understanding of viruses, bacteria, how viruses and bacteria interact. Yeah, I I absolutely love that. All right. Yeah, I think that's yeah. all we have. Thanks for listening. In the future, while it's great to highlight women in STEM, we're not exclusively going to look at women. We're not exclusively no. going to look at white women. Um, Definitely not. Yeah, Juliet just made the most interesting facial expression <laughs> of, hell yes, we're going to look at fabulous POC scientists who have been overlooked. The point is to try and shine a light on everyone that history has swept under the table for one reason or another. So Um, we'll leave you with this quote from Marie Curie. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less.